Good morning. Welcome to new, One New Man Ministries. I am joined here with Jerry Wasberg, Duke White, and and myself, Bob Andrews, and we are a ministry of reconciliation. We are Ephesians 2, 14 through 17 ministry, and I'll read it. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile them, both of, of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death by their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And Jerry, I guess you're going to share a word with us this morning about, uh, about uh, the reconciliation, and especially in Romans uh, uh, 10 through 14, I think we're going to start. Is that right, Jerry? Well, good morning, Bob, and Duke White is with us this morning. Uh, good morning to you. Praise God. Hello. Good, good morning. Audience. Uh, we're excited to be with you today. If you recall, last week we uh, spoke about the 10 days of awe. We are coming to the end of the high holidays. Uh, tonight, Jewish people around the world are going to be gathering for the beginning of Yom Kippur. Uh, it is... Uh, recognized uh, this evening at the beginning of sundown as the 10th day of the seventh month. It is the culmination of the 10 days of awe that began with Rosh Hashanah, a period of introspection, of uh, examining ourselves, of repentance. Uh, it is a period of uh, what's called in Hebrew teshuva, uh, which means to turn or return. Uh, to reorient ourselves towards God. <clears throat> it is a time to go about uh, praying and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration with people we may have wronged throughout the year. And tonight <clears throat> is the pinnacle of our concentration. Uh, it begins with a service called Kol Nidre. And Kol Nidre is a, a beautiful uh, medieval uh, melody and liturgy that uh, is actually a prayer for release from vows that Jews might have made uh, in order to escape persecution. And the sad reality is that during that time, uh, there was a lot of persecution directed towards Jewish people by the established church. And many Jews... <coughs> in order to avoid persecution would make a confession of uh, belief. And uh, it was not sincere, but it was meant as a way to escape uh, danger, persecution, uh, business disruptions, and possibly death. And so Kol Nidre was a prayer uh, brought before God at uh, Yom Kippur that we might be able to be absolved of vows <clears throat> that were not sincerely meant and were actually uh, an affront to, uh, to uh, the Lord, to Hashem. Um, it's followed up the next day. Well, at sundown then, the fast begins. And if you look at... Uh, the institution of Yom Kippur back in Leviticus, uh, it says it is a day to afflict our souls. And so it, it is the only fast day that is uh, proscribed in the scripture. It begins at sundown and uh, devout Jews around the world will fast for the next 25 hours. <clears throat> that is fasting from uh, all food and drink, of course. Uh, but it also is uh, to refrain from uh, bathing. It's refraining from uh, using any kind of body lotions or uh, oils or deodorant, for instance. Uh, it is a time to abstain from uh, sexual relations. And also uh, during this 25-hour period, we're not supposed to wear leather shoes. So there's some debate exactly about why leather shoes made the list. Uh, some people point to the fact that uh, they're more comfortable, and so it is a way to uh, keep ourselves from comfort. 
Others have argued that it is because uh, the animal uh, has to die in order to give us its skin in order to make leather, and we don't want to uh, hurt the creation in that way. So <clears throat> Yom Kippur is a day uh, that's marked by these uh, various ways of afflicting ourselves, of denying ourselves uh, material or sensual uh, comfort, luxury, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, there's two wonderful prayers that take place during the high holidays. Uh, both of them pointed towards a recognition that we are in submission to uh, God. Uh, that prayer is called the Avinu Malkainu, our Father, our King, in which we uh, petition the Lord for his mercy, for his uh, forgiveness, for his grace. And then at Yom Kippur, we pray a prayer called al Khait, uh, all sins, in which is a list of a variety of sins that we have committed throughout the year that we present before the Father and ask for atonement. Of course, Yom Kippur itself uh, means the Day of Atonement. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word kafir, to cover that under the old covenant system of sacrifice, the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then later in the temple with blood to sprinkle over the mercy seat. That was the covering over the ark, inside of which was the law which we broke. And so the blood sprinkled over that mercy seat signified that the uh, atonement was, was achieved through the sacrifice of the animal, through the blood of the covenant. The high priest went in once a year and so on Yom Kippur now, without the covering, uh, Jews believe that uh, we can substitute in prayer and forgiveness and repentance, and that these will be sufficient. Of course, that uh, completely overlooks the fact that God doesn't lie, he, he doesn't change. And so when he says, I've given you the blood on the altar to make atonement for your sins, uh, Jews today are really without a true sin covering. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the power of that prayer, the Achet prayer, and then it's followed up again uh, with Avinu Malkeno, a prayer for God's mercy. So it begins at Rosh Hashanah with Avinu Malkeno, our Father, our King. Uh, we pray for your mercy. Then the Achet at, uh, at Yom Kippur, reciting the sins, and then followed up again with the Avinu Malkeno, uh, Father, our King, have mercy on us, is, is, is still a nice picture of, of how we see uh, God uh, operating through Messiah, that we uh, petition for mercy, we confess our sins, we receive mercy. Uh, these are all true in Yeshua, uh, permanently, of course, in a way that's just not possible uh, with Yom Kippur as it's currently celebrated or observed by Jewish people. The... Uh, other interesting thing about Yom Kippur is on the day of Yom Kippur, the morning service is the uh, liturgy devoted to uh, the expressions of repentance and uh, recitation of our sins, and then the prayers for God's mercy. The afternoon service features uh, a reading of the book of Jonah. And one could ask, how did how did how does Jonah fit into Yom Kippur? <laughs> how does Jonah fit into the Day of Atonement? And the reason Jonah was chosen as the uh, scripture reading is because Jonah is a remarkable story of repentance. You have this wicked city Assyria that is dominating the world of its time, and and we won't go into the whole Jonah story, but here comes this uh, weird-looking guy uh, from, from uh, Judea to stand in front of the mightiest empire uh, and the mightiest king of his time and say, you guys have 40 days or God's going to wipe you out. And they believe him. <laughs> and they believe him and they repent. And God spares uh, Nineveh for uh, a, a few decades longer 
uh, they are going to be destroyed, but uh, it, it won't be until the next century when the Babylonians rise up. So just a remarkable story of, of, of repentance and God's great, great mercy on this city of, well, that wicked city is, is how it's described. And so, so uh, we're, I guess we're led to think that if God would have such mercy on the Assyrian people, will, will God not have equal or greater mercy on his own people, Israel? And so it's, it really does fit in so beautifully uh, with Yom Kippur, but also with our, our scripture reading for this week. Um, the Torah portion is Deuteronomy chapter 32. I just want to touch that, uh, touch on a couple things real quickly there. And then uh, the New Testament portion that is uh, paired with it is found in Romans chapter 10. But I'd like to uh, look at just a couple things in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, to, to uh, set the stage, if you will. And, and just that discussion about Jonah is, is a good way because it's about repentance. It's about uh, mercy on Gentiles. And it's about the mercy that God's going to extend to Israel all in uh, chapter 32. In chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, it begins, uh, this is the song of Moses. Moses spoke the words of this song. And remember in chapter 31, uh, God tells Moses, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel, put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. So this song that God instructs Moses back in chapter 31, now it comes out of his mouth in chapter 32, and it is meant to be a witness against the people of Israel. So this is God's testimony. This is what God has to say about Israel, uh, past, present, and future, if you will, that this song encompasses the history of Israel uh, not only from uh, the time when he brought them out of Egypt and the time that they're now standing there about to enter the promised land, but looking far into the future, uh, seeing Israel's sin and rebellion, but also seeing God's mercy in bringing them back. So in chapter 32, this is the song of Moses that he taught to the people of Israel. He says, uh, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And so he calls all creation to be witnesses to his testimony. So as long as the creation stands, this witness of God will stand as well. And I know Bob's going to bring up something about the witness of creation and its everlasting nature. Uh, a bit later on uh, when we talk about uh, Romans chapter 10, but just to see that this is a theme and a motif that shows up uh, in, in many places throughout Scripture where God calls his creation to witness uh, his testimony, his uh, complaint, if you will, against Israel and how Israel has behaved towards him. Uh, it begins then, uh, his testimony is uh, proclaiming God's great name, and then a description of God, uh, he is our rock, his work is perfect, he's a God of justice, faithfulness, he is just and upright. In spite of that, it says, Israel has dealt corruptly with him, they're no longer his children, they're blemished, a crooked and twisted generation. And so it goes on in this way, uh, back and forth between God's grace, God's mercy, God's wonderful character towards Israel, and how Israel keeps keeps um, walking away from him, rejecting his goodness, uh, how he gave them uh, his, his blessing in, in, in the land. And yet it says in verse 15, Yeshurun, that's a, uh, a nickname, if you will, for Israel. Uh, it's based on the Hebrew word Yashar or upright, the upright one, my upright one, uh, instead grew fat and kicked. 
They grew fat, stout, and sleek, and forsook God who made him, scoffed at the rock of his salvation. So it goes on and on in, in, in this way through, through this whole song, how God has been so faithful and just, and Israel has kept uh, enjoying the blessing but turning their back. And so now <clears throat> it says in verse 19, the Lord sought and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I'll hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And I'd like to use that as our transition over to Romans chapter 10, because though that last verse is actually used by Paul in his argument in these chapters of Romans uh, 9 through 11. So uh, any thoughts or comments as we've, as we've uh, gotten started here, guys? No, you're making good progress, Jerry. I just uh, the, the, What I find intriguing about a lot of this is God often uh, asks ask his creation to be a witness to, mm -hmm. to, the, to, to everyone else. So I just think, um, I think that's extraordinary that he brings that into it. Right. I, it's, so, it's, it's hard for me. Ahead, I'm just saying it's, it's hard for me not to, uh, <laughs> not to think about the fact that everything is still applying today. And it's just, my brain is like, are you talking about back then? Or are you talking about right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's cause I'm just seeing, that human nature hasn't changed. And uh, in a sense, it's a testimony of his, uh, even though we're, we're discussing Paul and we're discussing back then, like we clearly are bearing witness, you know, as Bob said, we're clearly bearing witness that he's continuing to be this mm -hmm. good to us because now I'm going, wait a minute. I thought, and it's going to sound ridiculous, but I thought that we came up with something new, like a new stress for God. <laughs> A new, but find out, no, he's been dealing with the same exact thing this entire time. Right. The, uh, the rabbis write something to the effect that this song uh, covers the past, present, and future. And that's, that's what we are wanting to kind of pull together here is that this history of Israel uh, that Moses foresees that is going to involve their uh, rejection of God, uh, his his chastising uh, them in return, uh, but that it will all work out in the end that Israel and God are going to be reunited in in covenant love. Uh, there's there's that that reality of God's declaration in the old covenant that Paul really is using to base his argument in Romans about the state of the Jews now that Messiah has come, but they have as a nation rejected him. What is God's plan for the Jews? Has it changed or does it remain the same? That they are one day still going to be brought back as God's covenant people. And we started talking about that last week uh, when we looked at chapter, the beginning of chapter 10 uh, the end of uh, Romans chapter 9, that uh, this whole section is, is all about making the case that God has not rejected his ancient people. So uh, if you'll recall last week, we ended with the idea that uh, in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that's Paul's conclusion to the part of the argument that God is really now calling Jews and Gentiles together in Messiah. And he's made that case from several different uh, Old Testament scripture verses. And his claim is that uh, God is doing a new thing in bringing Gentiles in, but he is not doing anything that he did not already declare was going to happen. So Paul makes his case that the Gentiles should be brought into Messiah, into the Jewish covenants, into the commonwealth of Israel uh, to partake of all of those blessings based on Old Testament scripture. And it was uh, 
primarily some of the verses from Deuteronomy chapter 30 about uh, the secret things belong to God, uh, the revealed things belong to us. Uh, the word is near. You don't have to go to heaven to get it. You don't have to go down to the pit to get it, but it's near. And he, Paul's point in Romans 10 is that it is near through the word of Messiah, the preaching of the crucified Savior. And now we all can come in the true faith, uh, whether we're Jew or Gentile. So that's that's where we're picking it up. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he's talking about his Jewish brothers in particular, verse 14, how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. So here's his point that actually they have been privy to this preaching. Uh, it was available to them in the Old Covenant, but they've not obeyed it. The gospel is in the Old Covenant. All over. You can, you, 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 you can oh, read of God's mercy and grace of, of oh, uh, salvation by faith, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. We have the testimony of Isaiah in chapter 53, all about the suffering servant who would take upon him uh, all the sins of the people. All we like sheep have gone astray. So the gospel is there for them, but they have not all obeyed in 1016. Because Isaiah says this, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's that famous verse introducing the suffering servant, uh, the, the Messiah who would who would uh, take the sins of the people. It says right at the top of that, who has believed our report? And the answer is very, very few. Very, very few. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Duke, you and I talked about faith uh, the other day. Yeah. And when Paul uses this word faith here, he, is he, he has a very specific concept in mind. He is talking about trusting in the Messiah. The word of faith is all about trusting in Messiah for the forgiveness of sins, for our right standing with God, for the new life, uh, the transformed life that only God can give through his Holy Spirit. This is the faith that he's talking about. That faith only comes by hearing and the kind of hearing that is focused on Messiah. Yeah, uh, I, I, so... What, I, what I'm trying to do is hear this from the perspective of somebody that was there uh, of who, who had to deal with, is Christ the Messiah or not? And now I have to deal with Paul preaching this. Uh, and it's it really is difficult to hear it uh, from the sense of, like, you know, the persecution is still currently happening. We're still under Roman oppression. Uh, and it's just this idea of trusting when I'm already in this difficult situation, things aren't looking like they're going to get better. It's not like, and if I accept this Messiah, now we're talking about embracing my oppressors. It's it just uh, for, for a human brain uh, in with our sinful nature, and especially when I know that the, the belief, and, and, and it's really like the only option is for, is for me to say, maybe I've believed Maybe I missed something from the Torah, from the Old Testament as a, if I'm a Jewish person there that day trying to deal with this, it's like, where did it say he he's going to, like, reconcile us with our oppressors? Like, where is that? Like, that the Messiah is going to do that? Because from what I understood, and I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong, from what I understood... They, the Messiah that the modern, the, the Jews of that day, the Messiah that they were waiting for was going to avenge them. It was going to, you know, liberate them. Uh, and I can only imagine, like, the pressure of this, this concept of now embracing Gentiles who, when we talk about the ways of the Gentiles, they could be completely polar opposites, you know, even from family, from food, you know, sexual orientation, all that stuff. And so to now say we're going to embrace Gentiles when we haven't even gotten our reconciliation, that's that's a difficult pill to swallow. 
It's it's true that the predominant view of Messiah was uh, to come as a conquering king who would uh, put all the oppressors down. <clears throat> However, uh, if we accept that Jesus is the Messiah, then we have to have have to listen to the way Jesus talks about oppressors and enemies, and we have to be you know, as followers of, of, of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ, we have to uh, walk in his ways, and his ways are ways of peace, his ways are ways of reconciliation, his way is love your enemies, his way is turn the other cheek, and sure, in the natural, those things are, are tough pills to swallow, and uh, I suppose we could say that even uh, walking in the spirit, uh, we, we, we have to wrestle with our flesh, <laughs> Uh, a lot if we're going to really follow through uh, with that way of following Jesus. But I guess I have to say that if we've made the commitment that Jesus is the Messiah, then we're also making the commitment to do our best to follow him, to submit ourselves to his leadership, to his lordship, to the Holy Spirit that he's put in our hearts to guide us. So... <clears throat> The, the difficulty of following Jesus then really is the same as it is today, and that is we have to put to death the flesh and the old man in order to really become like Jesus. I just can't imagine being Paul trying to tell people this. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? After Because the, the offense is currently happening, you know, where you know the the romans are still in charge they're still running like that this is such a a, bla a blessed burden to carry well but that's not really paul's paul's approach when he goes into synagogues you read in acts he is arguing for the case that yeshua of nazareth is the messiah he, he's he's not talking to them about some of the things that you were raising, he is trying to argue with them that a crucified person could be the Messiah. He's not, he's not really arguing about the implications of following him at this point. He's just simply uh, coming at, at Jewish people trying to preach the word of, of uh, Messiah, showing through the scripture that Messiah had to suffer and die and that he would rise again. So, you know, his primary text are Isaiah 53 probably, uh, Psalm 22, uh, things like that. And so uh, the issues that you're raising, you know, uh, th those get addressed in the epistles to uh, help people who are already committed to Messiah. This is how we, this is how we live. This is what we do. And that's where, you know, how, how do I deal with Roman oppression? Uh, comes in. I think the best person to read on that really is Peter. Uh, he has a lot to say about suffering at the hands, righteous suffering at the hands of uh, outside forces and particularly governmental forces. Bob, I you know, thought you had something you wanted to throw in there. Yeah, I did. You know, one of the things that, I, that in, the, in my studies is, is that. Uh, that why he one of the reasons he had to send a couple of reasons he had to send Jesus is that uh, first is the, the the natural human heart as as Jeremiah talks about is being uh, is a wicked it's deceptively wicked and secondly they often said in the, in the Old Testament that, that my children or my my people do not know me so when he internalized it when you accept Christ and you have a transformed life both of those become known you know you you now know jesus you, you might just you meet him for the first time but you get to know him more and more and eventually that 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 wicked heart soon as you're sanctified soon will become less and less and he becomes more and more in your life and i right. think i think that of of uh, and that being a, and he is now your witness that's within you that's inside you and and all of that together helps us to walk a straighter line and, and live a closer life to him which he would want us to do. So right. I thought I would share that with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Paul is, is making the case here uh, that they have had the opportunity through reading the old covenant, uh, but 
they they have not obeyed the gospel. He bases uh, his his uh, argument that they've heard on uh, Psalm 19. He says their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And if you look at Psalm 19, uh, it's split uh, between the idea of uh, God revealing himself to mankind through what's called general revelation, that is through the creation. And Paul says that uh, in Romans 1, the invisible things of God are evident through creation. Yes. This, is, this is what Psalm 19 is talking about, the power of God, the uh, <clears throat> uh, presence of God, um, the existence of God. These things are all uh, evident just from observing creation. But then the second part of uh, Psalm 19 talks about what, what we call today special revelation. That is where God speaks to us through his messengers, through his prophets, and gives us God's thoughts. The, the uh, character of God cannot be necessarily gleaned from looking at creation. We don't necessarily bring out from looking at a beautiful sunset that God is gracious or merciful or just. But he tells us that in his special revelation, in the words that he gives to us that explain not only who he is, but who we are and who we ought to be in relation to him. So when Paul quotes from Psalm 19 here, uh, even though he only focuses on the creation aspect of revelation, he is also implying the special revelation of God's word through his prophets. So that's what he means. They've had a chance to hear, uh, and, and they have not obeyed the gospel. Then he goes on in verse 19, didn't they understand? And Moses says, and here he quotes um, our, our, our verse that, that we ended from chapter 32 in Deuteronomy. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And so Paul pulls right out of our Torah portion this verse to make his case that Though Israel didn't understand, God is going to raise up followers from this nation, in this case, the nations, all, all the, the Hebrew word is goyim, the nations, from all the nations, in order to make you jealous. I will make you angry with them. And Isaiah picks up this same theme, he says in, in uh, 1020, Quoting from Isaiah 65, 1, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask oh, for man. me. So this is Paul again proving that God meant always to come to the nations to make himself known and to be worshipped by the nations. For after all, he made them. He is Lord of all. And then he follows up that with uh, another quote from Isaiah chapter 65, the very next verse. Here's what I say about Israel. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Wow. Isaiah, 750 or so years before Messiah is born, is really echoing some of the same things that Moses said at 1,200 years before Messiah is born. I'm going to be known by people who are a foreign nation, while at the same time, my own people, I keep reaching out to a stubborn and disobedient nation. So Paul, you know, we said this last week, Paul did not invent a new religion. <laughs> he, just, he just made plain what was right there in the scripture all along. So this is coming now to the culmination of his article. Where does Israel stand now in the plan of God? Chapter 11 of Romans. I ask, has God rejected his people? Well, based on what we've read, it's possible and maybe even easy for some people to assume, hey, he's done with them. He's turned his back on them. They were disobedient and stubborn. And now he has raised up another nation 
people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, and, and Israel is no more. You know what's funny but, about that? What's funny about that is that that I, I, I as our cultures and as our as, as humanity uh, comes together and we communicate more and uh, even from even in a secular way as mankind has become more united I noticed something there that that uh, the the old doesn't look like the old anymore uh, but it's still there it's still a foundation the fundamentals are still there uh, in, in certain things like technology like uh, we may have technology on our phones but we still have keyboards but keyboards actually originated with typewriters. And so there's this foundation, there's this evolution that does take place uh, intellectually. I believe it takes place spiritually as well. Um, and so when I think about God, where, where people could miss and misunderstand God rejecting Israel with God expanding the kingdom or fulfillment, um, if it's possible for Israel to miss the Messiah, and yet Gentiles can can know the Messiah and then it's also possible for the the the, the creator to be able to say, hey, this is how I'm going to reconcile mankind uh, where before there was just this breach, you know what I mean? There's just this breach between uh, mankind and God and then now that that breach has been closed through faith in the Messiah, uh, it's it's it is going to look different and I can totally see how those that are, that are being invited in can kind of get too familiar too fast and think that it's all about them and not see the entirety, uh, which is of course where I, where I, that's my honest belief about American Christianity in a sense. Uh, but it's like you, it's easy to miss uh, or, or mainly for the New Testament believer, it's it's easy to not appreciate the Old Testament because if you misinterpret that, you don't see where it's beneficial for you. You only see that the salvation, the blood of Christ is beneficial for you. And that's a huge place for a huge error in, in your theology uh, if you're only going to... I mean, I know it's great that salvation is there for Gentiles as well. But do you see what I'm saying? That's a big place to make a huge error because uh, you don't see where you're included in that in the Old Testament. But clearly, Paul was saying that this was happening the whole time. Well, this is really the uh, the case that he's making throughout this section of Romans. And uh, we've talked about this before, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But here he is refuting what we call replacement theology uh, or what some other people call super secessionism that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan that has church has overtaken all of Israel's promise and God has nothing more to do with the nation of Israel uh, and if we can kind of zero in on a couple of things left in this section of Romans chapter 11 Paul strongly uh, makes the case that it is not, not how God sees Israel. That in fact, he says, has God rejected his people by no means? And that is a very, very strong phrase in the Greek that he uses, uh, may denoita, may it never be, or some translations call it God forbid. This is a strongly emotional phrase that, that Paul uses, has God rejected his people? Meganoita, may it never be. And, and Jerry, and mine, said, my translation says absolutely not. You absolutely know. not. So, so the, now he, he's going to prove his point that he hasn't rejected Israel because look at me, he says, I'm an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin, so I'm in. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. So God has a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through them and through their descendants, he intends to bless the world. And that ultimate blessing, of course, is Messiah, but that blessing remains on the people. That covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants remains 
through thick and thin, because it is God who established the covenant. God is faithful to himself. Even when we are not faithful, Paul writes, he remains faithful. And so that's the case with Israel right now. And that's what Paul's arguing is I'm in. Now, don't you remember the story in scripture about Elijah who got all depressed after his big fight and he runs away and God talks to him and he says, oh, I'm the only one who's left. And God says, well, no, I have 7,000 other faithful people who have not bowed the knee, right? So too, he says in verse five of chapter 11, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if you read through the opening chapters of uh, Isaiah, uh, the remnant plays a prominent role in the discussions that Isaiah, that Isaiah is bringing out uh, that prominently feature uh, disaster and judgment, but there's a remnant. There's a root that stays in the ground that is going to spring forth in fruitful life later on. This is the remnant uh, that is chosen by grace. So, you know, uh, I'm a Jewish believer. Paul is a Jewish believer. Uh, Lee, who couldn't be with us today, is, is a Jewish believer in Messiah Yeshua. Uh, how did we become believers? Because God confronted us with his grace. God chose us before the foundation of the world to be elected in Messiah. And this is not by my works, by my merit, by my right living, uh, by my promises, by anything that I might have done, because otherwise my salvation would not be grace, but works. And that's the point that he's making. So, so Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And we know what it was seeking because at the beginning of chapter 10, it talks about they sought the right standing with God, but they went about it the wrong way. They attempted to achieve it on the basis of works, when like Abraham, it was meant to be established on the basis of faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as his right standing. So in chapter 11, verse seven of Romans, Paul picks this up. Israel failed to obtain this right standing, but the elect obtained it because it came by grace through faith. This is what he was talking about earlier about believing, you know, the word of faith. So now uh, the elect have received grace, but the rest were hardened. We're talking about all, all the Jewish people available then and now, there remains a, an elect remnant and the rest who are hardened. What does it say about them? God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. This was Isaiah's testimony. Isaiah wasn't the only one who said it. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. It's this sort of hardening that Paul has in mind in Corinthians when he writes, the veil is still over their eyes when Moses is read. And until God removes the veil, they cannot understand. And this was the case I can testify in my own life until the veil was removed, until I began to see through the eyes of, of uh, the, the preaching of Messiah that any of it made any sense. So this is what Paul is, is relying on, that what has happened to Israel is a hardening in part. And this is what he's going to talk about now. I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Meganoida, by no means. God forbid. May it never be. Did they stumble so that they should fall? No. They're still stumbling, but they have not fallen. But, but and Jerry, so, Jerry, and 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 Paul's own life, you know, he would be when mm -hmm. he was, you know, he was chasing the Christians to persecute them, mm -hmm. and then when he then when he came to the knowledge of God, scales came off his eyes. Do we remember that? Well, oh, that is man, a good, good. Literal, good. Little, yes. literal point to make, indeed. And so those scales were, was was his own blindness that he could he couldn't see the gospel until God reached out with a gift of uh, salvation to him. But look right. what he became. You know, I think there's two reasons why. Well, a couple reasons, three reasons why he chose uh, Paul. First of all, Paul was very intelligent. Uh, 
Secondly, he was a Pharisee and knew God's word inside out. And third, he had zeal. You know, he wasn't going to be stopped. So I think all those three things together, along with, with Yeshua living inside of him, he couldn't be stopped. So. Yeah, I, I would like to say, um, when I think about, you know, what, what what Paul's really dealing with in this context, you know, it's... it's um, when we when you have straight off but this has become the way we do things and then you know uh, god gives you this revelation you know like you thought it was this you know you thought that baptist was the only one to be saved and nobody else was saved outside of the baptist and then you thought it was oh it's all about non-denominationalism then it's all about uh you know the this you know all these different sects of course uh the seventh day of venice and you know all these different denominations and you 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 don't think it's it's really only when you get in tune with the heart of god do you realize that it's always been about him and him first and it's so easy to uh it's so easy to veer off into your own thing just like the pharisees did or just like the jews of that day did uh persecution can veer you off poverty desperation uh, like you said the young Kippur is about the relieving of vows that are made you know um you know, a portion of that is about the, the vows that are made in desperation. So you might say some things you don't mean and make some commitments that you don't need that alter something. You may have, uh, the bloodline may have been infiltrated by, you know, non-believers or, or people that don't share the same uh, same religion or faith that you have. But the point is that, when you know, what, I, what I'm seeing is all of that veering off comes when we lose focus of the Father's will. Uh, even even like you know, what Bob said, what Paul, you know, believing himself that he's serving God by persecuting the Christians, and then when he finds out that he's not, you know, that that became his new focus point. Let me stay aligned with what God is doing. And that tells me that even believers have to be aware of how trauma can try to, to the trauma in our response to trauma uh, and, and disbelief or, or whatever is going on, that we've got to keep God and what he's doing uh, as the focus. And it really makes me want to just say it, that this is the reason why we can't veer off and kind of take liberties with the word of God. Right. Yeah, we certainly have to uh, stick to what it says. I want to, because we're, we're coming up close to the end, I want to make sure that we, we uh, understand Paul, the, 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 the goal of Paul's argument here and also to make the case that this ties clearly to the Old Testament's understanding that Israel is going to be chastened by God. But just like uh, Hebrews brings up, unless you're a son, uh, you won't be disciplined. And so Israel's discipline under God's hand right now proves, in a way, that God has not turned his back on Israel. Uh, but here's what he says. I just want to touch on a couple points left in, in Romans 11. And then I know Bob, uh, I want to give Bob a chance to talk about Jeremiah a bit. Uh, he says in Romans chapter 11, if their trespass has brought salvation to the Gentiles, uh, how, mu how much will, more will their inclusion bring? Okay, that their trust, their their salvation to the Gentiles was to make Israel jealous, and I can testify that in my own case, uh, jealousy the Gentiles knew my Old Testament scripture is part of what made me uh, jealous uh, to to investigate the scriptures for myself and and you know by the leading of the Holy Spirit to discover that Jesus is the Messiah. So. Uh, bringing in the Gentiles is meant to provoke Jews to jealousy that they might consider that uh, Jesus is the Messiah. The second big picture that Paul uses is that of a, uh, a an olive tree and that the Jewish people were the natural branches. The root of the olive tree is God. The root of the olive tree is God's word given to us. The root of the olive tree, if you will, is Yeshua himself. And all of these natural branches that grew out of that were the Jewish nation. Because of unbelief, some of those branches were cut off 
And Paul describes the Gentiles as wild olive branches that they were grafted in. If God could do that in that direction, if uh, he wants to and when he wants to, he can graft in the natural olive branches right back in. And so he gets to uh, verse 25, talking to the Gentile believers. And this is a mixed church that he's writing to in Rome of Gentiles and Jews. He, he says to them, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand a mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Remember, there is always a remnant. So this is a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Till God has called out of the nations all of those who are going to come. And then it says, all Israel will be saved. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they're enemies, for God, uh, enemies of God for your sake. That is, you are coming in because they have rejected God and made him their enemy. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So Paul has really expanded on what Deuteronomy chapter 32 puts so poetically that God is our rock and our father. He has called us out of Egypt to serve him. We turned our backs on him. He has had to chasten and punish us. But in the end, in the end, he will avenge himself against his enemies and establish his people. Amen. Bob, I know you wanted to uh, bring in uh, Jeremiah once more and the testimony of uh, nature. Yes, um, and, you know we were talking earlier about the replacement theology that that's at, that's out there, and I just want to you know put that to bed and 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 put a nail in that the final nail in that coffin because it's it's not like God to break promises of a covenant. He keeps all of His covenants. Amen. And, um, and let me just read one. This is in Jeremiah 33, 33, 33, 23 through 26. And at the time this was written, it's probably about 590 B.C. And about 140 years earlier, you know, the Assyrian uh, army wiped out about 90 percent of Israel up of the, the 10 kingdoms. So they're coming to the end of, the, of, the, of, of Judah and, and the army surrounded, the enemy has surrounded Israel within the uh, walls of Jerusalem. And let me read this because it, it, it can seem like it's coming to an end for the Jews, but it's not. But let me read this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that the people are saying the Lord has rejected two kingdoms? That's uh, Judah and the northern kingdom. He, he chose, so they despised my people and no longer regard them as a nation. That's what they are thinking that God's saying. This mm -hmm. is what the Lord says. Have I not made my covenant with the night and the day and established the laws of heaven and earth? Then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and I will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. So he's saying that, hey, if anybody, and it goes on to say in, in, in uh, Jeremiah, that if you can stop the sun from coming up tomorrow morning, then I'll consider breaking my covenant with them. If you can stop the tide from coming in today, then I'll consider rejecting my covenant with Israel. So what he's, you know, what he's saying is, is that it's not going to, it's not going to stop. It's going to be ongoing. I love my people right. in Israel. Amen. So Amen. I wanted to just say that because I, I, when I hear that replacement theology, I think it's an affront to God. I think it's a affront to the Jewish people and it's just simply not true. Yeah. I, right. I, I, I always, uh, like it it unto you know needing to i always think about the you know like an the of an adopted child trying to find rank with the the adopted brothers you know like the the the, the biological brother and the adopted child and the adopted child's like no this is about me it's about me because such a great deed was done adoption is a wonderful thing and it's a big deal and so i could see how you know uh you know, when I think about it, I think about it from the father's perspective, and I think we might un underestimate. You know, we approach spirituality sometimes from a religious perspective, and we don't see it from a parental perspective, where God, as a father, has has these children, these um, 
you know, both just the human species, the human species that he is trying to save. They break out into tribalism and he has to create, you know, a people to set the example, to set the tone that has his heart, that that has his, that can bear his salvation, his Messiah. Uh, and he he creates that. And, and I think we often forget that ultimately it's his nation that he's creating and molding he said i'm going to create a nation to myself and and he tells abraham through this nation you know all families of the earth will be blessed in genesis 12 um so we know that the end result is that all families of the earth will be blessed but this filtering process of of who is going to come is going to come through those that truly believed and and uh, allowed themselves to be purified by the word of God. Amen. It's interesting that in uh, chapter 32 in Moses' song, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the oh. sons of... Then there's some debate... Uh, the Hebrew text says the sons of Israel, because according to Genesis, uh, there were 70 nations that were uh, formed after the Tower of Babel, which corresponds to the 70 descendants of Jacob that went down to Israel. Uh, other texts have it uh, as according to the numbers of the sons of God. But in either case, the next verse says that Hashem, the Lord's, portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, that of all the nations in the world, Jacob is his portion and inheritance. And so God does not turn his back on his people. God's everlasting covenant with Abraham uh, can only be uh, overturned if you can also overturn his uh, covenant with the sun coming up in the morning and the tides going in and out. Uh, interesting that our uh, Haftarah portion is 2 Samuel chapter 22, which can also be found as Psalm uh, 28. Is it 28? Uh, yes, uh, uh, or no, Psalm 18, I'm sorry. Um, but it begins with the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. But it also has a heading that says, this is the song that David sang on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And it goes on to describe all of the trouble that David was in and how God uh, helped him, how God gave him an arm strong enough to bend a bow of bronze. And I can run against a troop and scale a wall and all that stuff. Uh, but at the very end of the psalm, and this gets back to God's everlasting covenants, the end of the psalm is this. For this I will praise you, O Hashem, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation, and there's in Hebrew that word Yeshua, he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Forever. Nothing can change that. And that is a, a reason why Matthew introduces his gospel, uh, particularly tuned towards a Jewish audience. Here is the good news about Yeshua, son of David, son of Abraham. He is the embodiment of God's covenants, of God's promises. And so today, uh, as you're listening to us, uh, we want to bring this to a close. And remind everybody again that tonight is the night of Yom Kippur. It concludes a season of uh, repentance and prayer and uh, remembering our sin and seeking to make it right. And we are saying as New Covenant believers that God is asking the same of all of us, of all of you, if you have not received Yeshua, that he is letting you know. Uh, you need to repent, you need to confess your sins, and you need to understand there's no more blood sacrifice on an altar in a temple in Jerusalem because once, a little over 2,000 years ago, 
The Son of God hung on a cross and took your sins and paid for them. An atonement, final atonement, has been accomplished once and for all through that sacrifice. And so we invite you now, if you would like to make Jesus, Yeshua, your payment for sin and have right standing with God, would you pray this with us now? Father in heaven, I ask you to forgive my, my sins because Yeshua has already paid for them. Father, I give myself to you in faith, thanking you for the gift Yeshua brought to me, forgiveness of sins. And I ask you, Father, in Yeshua's name, that you will make me a faithful servant and a follower of Yeshua through the power of the Holy Spirit that you have put in my heart. And I ask that you will do these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 If you prayed that prayer or you want to reach out to us for any other reason, please contact us at One New Man Ministries International on Facebook. Remember, you can catch this broadcast and please share it with your friends on any streaming service. God bless you, and we hope you'll be back with us next week.